0: When I was in high school, we used to, you know, go on a lot of trips, like a lot of high school youth groups, and we would play this game together called, What Would You Do If? This is how do you kill hours in a van, you know, driving to some event. So uh, we'd come up with different scenarios, and I want to play one of those with you this morning. What would you do if you were stranded on a desert island and you had no access to water and you had been very thirsty for many days now, and all of a sudden you came upon a water pump? But there's a note on this water pump, and it reads this. I have buried a bottle of water to prime the pump. Don't drink any of it. Pour in half of it to wet the leather, then wait and pour in the rest afterwards. Then pump. The well has never gone dry, but the pump must be primed to bring the water up. Have faith, believe. When you are through drying water, fill the bottle and bury it in the sand for the next traveler. What do you think you'd do in that situation? Would you take the bottle and go for the immediate gratification, or would you trust what that note said, and primed the pump, knowing you might have just given away all of your potential water in that situation. What would you do? It's the very same question Jesus is going to ask us to consider this morning as we continue our series walking through the Gospel of John called Encountering Christ. We're going to get right at it, so take your Bibles and turn them to John chapter 6, we're starting in verse 25 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, we always encourage you grab one of the red ones in the seat back in front of you and you can find John 6:25 somewhere around page 700 or 800. We want to be first-handers here and in fact, if you don't own a Bible, we encourage you to take that home with you. That is our gift to you this morning. Now, if you were not here last week, you missed a very powerful message that Pastor Brian gave about John 6, 1 through 15, where Jesus feeds the 5,000. And I got to tell you, the encounter we're looking at this morning is really a continuation of that amazing miracle. So as you're turning to John 6, let me remind us of where we've been and kind of set the stage for this Uh, encounter here. Right now, we learned last week that Jesus is as popular as he has ever been in his ministry, right? There's over 20,000 people potentially following him at this point, and the feeding of the 5,000, as you can imagine, has made his popularity increase even more. In fact, we learned last week, if you're following on your notes, that after feeding them, the crowd wants to crown Jesus as king. After feeding them, the crowd wants to crown Jesus as king. I mean, this is great news, right? That's why he came. Well, not so fast. We discover at the end of that story that Jesus actually withdraws from the crowd because he knows that their intentions for crowning him as king are all wrong. They wanted a material savior someone who could meet their physical needs. And so Jesus withdraws. He goes up onto a mountaintop to be by himself, to pray. I can understand that after a day of ministry, you know, being an introvert myself, he needs to get away and get some me time, some time alone with the Lord. But he sends the disciples on ahead of him to the city of Capernaum. I think we still have a map here. So they're up in the Sea of Galilee area. So you can see Capernaum up there. He tells them, I'll meet you there. And they're going, okay, how are you going to do that? We're not sure. They get in the boat and that leads to that amazing story uh, in John 6 where Jesus walks on the water and he calms the storm for the disciples. And you can read that in verses 16 through 21. But eventually, the boat arrives in Capernaum and not far behind them, guess who comes? The crowd. They're not letting this guy get away that easy. They're searching for Jesus. And that's where our encounter, the one we're looking at this morning, picks up in John 6, verse 25. Look at it. It says... When they found him on the other side of the lake, they, the crowd, asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? I get a sense personally that it's kind of almost like you don't have any business trying to elude us like this. Why are you running away? We're trying to make you king after all. What is your deal? Well, now read verse 26 out loud with me there on your notes. It says... Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, you want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. Right there we get it. Jesus knows why they're following him. He understands their intentions. They like the idea of this on-demand fish maker and bread baker, this on-demand king that can give them whatever they want, whenever they want. Or if you're following again on your notes there, the crowd wants Jesus to fill their material desires. That's why they're following him. They want Jesus to fill their material desires. They found the water bottle in the desert, right? This is great. I want to drink now. I want to quench my thirst again. But what we're about to read is Jesus says, I've come to quench a much deeper thirst than your immediate needs. Verse 27, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Love that question. That is such a legalistic question right there, right? What do we have to do? We want bread. He start talking about this other stuff. Well, what do we have to do to get the bread? That is legalism at its core, right? It's trying to control God. If I do this for you, God, then you're obligated... To do this for me and so their question is what do we have to do in order to get you to be the kind of king we want you to be now jesus has made it clear throughout the gospel of john if you've been with us throughout this series there's only one thing we have to do right only one thing there's only one work god requires of us and he tells us again in verse 29 jesus answered the work of god is this you want to know what to do to believe in the one he has sent that's it Encounter after encounter throughout this series, it always comes down to this, doesn't it? Trust. Believe that I am who I claim to be. And that a life of following me is the best life possible. Trust. Believe. It's not just about the water bottle. I've got a pump of water waiting for you. Now, as the readers of the story, we get to see the heart of the crowd in verse 30. So they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Do you get what they're saying there? Oh, we'll believe as long as you do exactly what you, we want you to do. You know, God gave the Israelites manna in desert. That seemed like a pretty good deal. We want you to do that for us now, and then we'll believe. Do you see the control here? They're trying to control Jesus. We'll believe in you if you do what we want you to do. Give us our fill every day. Or if you're falling on your notes, they will only believe, and I would put that in apostrophes, right? Not a real belief, but they would only believe if he provides daily manna. Give us the water bottle. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The crowd wants bread. Well, guess what? There's a whole new kind of bread that has come down from heaven. The Father has provided, just like he provided the manna in the desert for our forefathers, he has provided an even better kind of bread. The manna, in fact, is just a foreshadow. Of what was to come the bread of having the living bread that would provide life to the full and it comes in the person of God's own son now I always love how Jesus does this you've noticed if you've read through the Gospels one thing Jesus loves to do is take everyday normal physical type things and use them to make a spiritual lesson right So we saw it with Nicodemus when Jesus talked about birth. He used that to make a spiritual point. We saw it with the woman at the well. He's talking about living water or running water. And he uses that to make a point. And we see it again here with the crowd. He takes this everyday normal thing, bread, and he's using it to make a spiritual point. And yet, like every encounter we've looked at so far, they miss the point. In fact, it says, sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. All they can hear is bread physical water bottle in the desert. Give it to me now. Give us what we want. But Jesus wants them to think about, look, there's a more lasting satisfaction I want you to consider here than your immediate needs, and that leads us to this incredible claim Jesus makes. In fact, it's the first what we call I am statement Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. We're going to see six others of these, but unmistakably, when Jesus says I am in what we're about to read, he is referring to himself as God, right? He is claiming the holy name of God, the name God used when he encountered Moses at the burning bush, and Moses asked, what is your name? And God said, I am I am who I am, Yahweh, and Jesus claims that name for himself. And here we have the first time he does it in John 6, 35. Let's read it out loud together. It says, Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus calls himself the bread of life. He's saying, I'm not like that man, huh? I'm even better. I have come to give you an everlasting kind of satisfaction. In fact, he's saying, if you're following on your notes there, while manna temporarily sustains life, as the bread of life, he gives it. He gives it. I give life as the bread of life. Now let's uh, pause in our story here for a moment, because I'd like to make a few observations about this encounter with the crowd. Not much has changed in 2,000 years, has it? Remember back in the 80s, I believe, Madonna wrote this very deep song called Material Girl. I am a material girl, and I'm living in a material world. I believe that's how it went. Uh, again, not the deepest song ever written, but I got to tell you, I, gotta, I give her credit for telling the truth. 2,000 years have passed, and we still live in a material world. We're still material People. Some things have just not changed. We are looking for water bottles everywhere. I'll never forget. It had to be about six years ago, I got to go to hear Cameron Mills speak at an FCA uh, thing that was done here in town. Cameron Mills is a former basketball player for the University of Kentucky, and he gets up and he shares this story of how his whole life had been driven by basketball, and he thought if he had just won the ring, if he could just win the NCAA National Championship ring, he would be fulfilled. I mean, that would be it. That would be the satisfaction he was dreaming for. So at the University of Kentucky his freshman year, they actually win the ring but it didn't satisfy him too much because he was a uh, on the bench most of the time so he thought well I, I gotta be a key component on this team if this is really going to satisfy me and so again his junior year the university of kentucky sure enough they win the championship and he is waiting at home one day ex- describes this story for this ring to arrive i mean this was going to be the moment of his life the pinnacle right the water bottle and it comes and he opens it up and he realized there was still this hole. It didn't fulfill him like he thought it would. And he ended his talk. I wrote down this statement he makes. I love it. He, wrote, he said, I hope you all get your ring someday. St. Augustine said, there's a vacuum inside every human being. And we believe, we believe That if we just get that one thing, that one thing, it will bring us happiness. We'll be content. If we could just get that ring, we would fill that vacuum. You know, Augustine's right, of course. The problem is we look for other things to try to fill that vacuum than the only thing that can. In this encounter, the crowd thinks, The daily provision of bread. I mean, can you imagine how great that would be? Our lives would be a breeze. We'd be satisfied if we could just have bread every day waiting for us. But Jesus tells them, only I, the bread from heaven, the living bread, the bread of life, can satisfy you. Now I wonder, if Jesus were here, would he ask us the question, what kind of things are you looking to satisfy you today? Are you looking for the breads of this world or the bread of life? I shared this illustration eight years ago. I know some of you probably remember this. But we have represented here two loaves of bread. We've got Jesus claiming, I am the bread of life. And yet we live in a material world just like the crowd did that says there's all kinds of other good bread out there if you just eat enough of it, then you're going to be satisfied, right? And so we believe this lie like Cameron Mills. Look, if I just live the American dream, that's going to satisfy me. I mean, if I get the house with the picket fence and the perfect kids and all that stuff, that's the ring that's really going to get me there. Or maybe we live for entertainment, you know, the next movie that's coming out. Oh, I can't wait. The video games. If I just pass this level, I can get to the next... Oh, that's going to be a moment in my life I'll never forget. Some of us work for the next vacation, right? We work 50 weeks out of, or 50 weeks out of the year for those two weeks. Oh, just give me those two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> Sitting on the beach, doing nothing. That's what I live for. That's going to satisfy my soul here. Maybe some of us live like I can sometimes endanger be for our favorite sports team, right? That the Vikings, oh, the Vikings. If they could just win the Super Bowl one year, that would, well, let's be honest, that's never happening, right? <laughs> when we're single, when we're single, we think, oh, if I could just find that person. My life is not complete until I find that right person. so we, we seek it. And once we get married, we realize, oh, that wasn't quite it. <laughs> Maybe once we have kids, then we'll, and we keep filling our lives with this stuff and we realize, well, it's hard being a parent. But we think, you know, if our kids turn out perfect, then that's really gonna satisfy us. And we live our lives through our kids. I I got no more room. We got other examples. Excuse me. I can't eat all that. I mean, there's other things, isn't there? Hobbies. I just get that next golfing trip, that next fishing trip. We even use religion to try to satisfy us. If I do this, then God owes it to me to do that. Friends, now what's eventually going to happen to all that bread in my mouth? It might fill me up for a little while, won't it? But eventually, I'm going to need more. I'm going to be hungry again. Why? Why? If you're on your notes, because the breads of this world will never satisfy us. Have you learned that? The breads of this world will never satisfy. Have you gotten your ring and realized? It's not it. This is exactly what Jesus says later in verses 47 through 51. We're going to kind of skip ahead there you're ready it says i tell you the truth he who believes has everlasting life i am the bread of life i am the bread of life not this i am the bread of life your forefathers ate the manna in the desert what does it say there yet they died it's the same thing the breads of this world, right? It leaves us empty. It doesn't satisfy. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. If you're following on your notes there, Jesus is claiming in this statement that the only, that only living bread, only living bread can satisfy the emptiness in our lives. It's only this. Only the living bread can satisfy the emptiness in our lives. Only He can fill the vacuum. Only He can rescue us from this lie. This lie that permeates our culture that if we just get that next thing then I'll be satisfied. The Israelites had their fill of bread, yet were they satisfied, friends? No, they grumbled and complained all the more. The breads of this world, they're not eternal. They're not ultimately going to satisfy us. In fact, the truth is, no matter how much we stuff ourselves with them, and we're good at that in this country, they're all going to eventually disappear and leave us hungry again. But the good news is, Jesus says, I came from heaven. I came from heaven as living bread in order to satisfy your souls. And I did this by offering my flesh to the world (coughs) or if you're following by giving his life by giving his life jesus says he has given us life by giving his life he has given us life he is the bread of life (coughs) excuse me i got some bread in my throat kind of chokes us too doesn't it at this point in the encounter the question becomes for the crowd i hope for you well how do i get this bread How do I fill the vacuum? And Jesus addresses this in verses 53 through 59, which I just got to tell you, pause, time out, before you look, these can honestly be some of the, the most confusing verses in the entire Bible if they are taken out of context. Now, let's remember the context of what we're talking about here. Again, remember, Jesus loves to do what? Take physical things. And make spiritual application about them. So let's just remember that as we read verse 53 and continuing. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum why is that confusing? Well, some people teach that Jesus must be talking about communion here or the Eucharist, right? And yet he makes it clear later on in verse 63 that he's not speaking in literal terms. As he has done many times, he is using the physical thing of bread to talk about a spiritual truth. But because this has been so confusing... In the past, let me just mention a number of reasons why I believe he's not talking about Eucharist. First of all, Jesus makes it very clear, you notice in verse 53, that eating and drinking were absolutely essential for eternal life, right? You see it there? Unless you do it, you have no life in me. There are no exceptions. So if he's talking about a church ordinance here, like the Eucharist, then everybody who has never taken part in that is spiritually dead and is going to hell. So, that would include all the Old Testament saints. It would include the thief on the cross. And it would include a host of people who have trusted Christ in emergency situations. Maybe you know them on their deathbed, perhaps. Another factor I don't believe he's talking about communion here is because of the tense of the verbs in Greek here. It's the errorist tense. I know that doesn't necessarily mean anything to you, but errorist is a once and for all action. How often are we supposed to take communion? One time in our lives? Or regularly. Jesus tells us to do it regularly. So, whatever he's talking about here, he says this is a one time deal. This is a one time thing, right? And then finally, it's important, I think, that the word he uses here is flesh, which is never the word that's used to describe communion in either the Gospels or 1 Corinthians. The word used there is body. So, listen, if we take this back into the context of this passage, eating his body, as he says, And drinking his flesh is an image Jesus is using to illustrate a spiritual point, right? This point he's been trying to address to the crowd throughout this chapter. And it's this, if you're on your notes, to eat and drink means receiving Christ into our lives. It's a once and for all action of saying, he is the bread of life. And I receive that bread to satisfy me for eternity I acknowledge Christ took my place, he took my vacuum, he took my emptiness, he took my sin, and he gave his flesh, and he gave his blood to be broken and poured out for me, and now I receive that gift. I receive that life to satisfy me forever. Think of it this way, uh, unless you're really strange, do you ever go to a bakery and just look at all the different kinds of bread? just kind of smell around well i think that's okay but is that what bread is ultimately for bread is meant to be eaten not just smelled not just looked at you eat it and that's what it's for and that's what he's saying to the crowd here right i came so that you might receive me that i might be the consuming passion of your life You know, we've been talking about this for the last two years almost as a church, right? Receiving Christ, believing in Christ. What does that mean? Is that just mentally saying, yeah, I believe he's the son of God, and one day I'll be in heaven with him? Or is it much more than that? Well, we've been learning it's way more than that, right? It means receiving him and devoting myself to him fully. Making him my consuming passion, my living bread Friends, the challenge Jesus gives the crowd is, listen, you can have that water bottle. might satisfy you, sustain you for a little while. Or you can have the pump. The pump of everlasting life and satisfaction. And he asks them, and he still asks us today, which one are you going to choose? Or as I started, what would you do? What would you do? If you're following on your notes, Jesus asks us, will I trust that only he can satisfy me? not the water bottle not the ring not the breads of this world will i trust that only he can satisfy me and then follow and then follow him follow him or to put it another way jesus says it's time to the crowd he's talking about here it's time we have a dtr it's time we have a dtr how many of you just raise your hand do you know what i'm talking about when i use the letters d t r go ahead i saw you too yeah only the younger people in the crowd. DTR is something uh, that you have to do if for a young man if you're in a relationship. I had to have a DTR with Peggy while we were dating in college. It simply means it's time to define the relationship. It's time to define this relationship. If you're dating a girl, there comes a point in the relationship where you've got to define the relationship, right? Where is this potentially going? In other words, we've kind of moved past the initial stages of this relationship, the infatuation and the admiration, and we got to discover together is it time we move into a deeper level of commitment? (laughs) And how you feel about the DTR talk reveals how committed you are to that relationship. If the relationship is shallow, then the DTR talk is going to be pretty uncomfortable, right? You're going to know you're not in this for the right reasons. Well, I think in a similar way, in this encounter with the crowd, Jesus is having a DTR. It's time to define our relationship. Interesting, he's at the height of his popularity. And yet he knows that this crowd has been following him, not because they feel like he is the bread of life, but for the wrong intentions. They want a quick fix. They want a material savior. They want a king who will meet their needs. And he says, I can't provide you all the benefits without a commitment. I'm the bread of life. And in order to have this life, you got to give me your life first. I'm looking for commitment here. Jesus said it this way in Mark 8, 34. Then he called the crowd, noticed the crowd again, to him and along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. He's looking for commitment here. If you're following on your notes, Jesus cares about the commitment of the crowd, not the size. He cares about the commitment of the crowd, not the size. And to this crowd of potentially 20,000 people or more, he says, it's time that you and I define our relationship. Why are you here? Why are you following me? Is it because you're materially, materially motivated? Is it because you want full stomachs? You want a relationship with me that provides all the benefits without the commitment? Well, I got to tell you, I want total devotion. I want your whole life. Or if you're following, he tells the crowd plainly to count the cost of following him. Count the cost of following him. I got to tell you, if Jesus were a politician... This is like the worst speech ever. (laughs) Right? He's at the height of his popularity. And yet he says, why are you following me? What do you really want? Because here's what I want. I want an unconditional surrender to me of your life that I am your Lord. Well, notice the crowd's response in verse 60. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is hard teaching. Who can accept it? Is following Jesus hard? It is, unless we've made him into someone he's not. It can be pretty easy if it's Jesus the vending machine who gives me whatever I want, whenever I need. It can be pretty easy if it's Jesus the rabbit foot who I put in my pocket and he's there for me in times of a pinch. It can be pretty easy if it's Jesus who's there to make my life comfortable. And if it's not comfortable, I wonder why he's not doing his job. It can be pretty easy if it's Jesus I give an hour of my life to on Sunday mornings, but he can stay out of my business the rest of the week. Jesus begins this crowd with a confront begins this encounter with a confrontation. Why are you really following me? And he ends it here by asking the crowd to decide. It's like a line in the sand, right? What are you gonna do with me? Let's define this relationship. We'll look at verse 61. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before, which is at the right hand of his Father, which is what he's been claiming all along, and that they have denied it over and over? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. Yet, there are some of you who do not believe For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you, that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. Now, read one of the saddest verses in the entire Bible out loud with me. Verse 66 of John 6 says, From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. He defined the relationship. I'm either your Lord or I'm nothing and many left. I mean, just picture this right now. Picture that, these people leaving while you read, while we look at verse 67. You don't want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Do you notice a hint of sadness in there? I mean, he just sees this multitude of people leaving, and he turns to the 12. You're not leaving too, are you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil, and that just means deceiver. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. As we close this morning, I want to just mention, I noticed three responses to this DTR talk in this passage, and I wonder if they're the same responses we might have today. First, number one, there's the response of the fan. Fan, F-A-N. A fan is defined as an enthusiastic admirer. If you're following on your notes, an enthusiastic admirer. MSNBC recently did a report on the new vegetarians, and one of them, her name is Christy Pug, kind of captured this report well. I will quote with these words, I usually eat vegetarian, but I really like bacon. (laughs) According to MSNBC, she represents a growing number of people who refer to themselves as flexitarians. Most of the time, they will refuse to eat meat, but once in a while, they make an exception. Christy explains it this way. I really like vegetarian food, but I'm not 100% committed. Flexitarian. That's a great way to describe how fans of Jesus view their commitment, isn't it? I really like Jesus, but I'm not sure I want to give him my whole life. I mean, I really want to follow him, but if he asked me to forgive that person who hurt me, I I really want to follow him, but how dare he ask me to give a portion of my income? I worked hard for that. I really want to follow him, but don't go talking to me about my sex life, Jesus. I really want to follow him, but gosh, this stuff looks so nice. (laughs) Fans wear the name of Christian, and then they pick and choose the teachings of Jesus that they wanna follow as if it's some sort of a buffet. This looks good, that doesn't look so good, I'm gonna make him into my own image. Fans don't mind Jesus once a week on Sunday, they don't mind making some minor changes in their lives even. But we read in the gospels, Jesus wants to turn our lives upside down, doesn't he? So often I just want a little touch up in my life. But he wants a complete renovation. A fan asks the question, how can I be comfortable? There's nothing comfortable about the call to follow Jesus. Fans like shallow Christianity. It's safe. But Jesus calls us to depth. We learn in John 6, don't we, that the majority of the crowd were fans of Jesus. They liked what he had to offer, especially when it came to this free bread. But when it came down to actually committing, it says they turned back and no longer followed him. When Jesus got to the point of the DTR and said, it's not a part-time, halfway deal, you're all in or it's nothing, they left. Now the second response to Jesus' DTR is found in Peter's words. In Peter and in the disciples, we see what it means to be, number two, a follower. A follower, number two. Being a true follower means following Christ loyally even when his truth is hard to understand. And this was some hard stuff for them. It means following them even when it's hard to apply. That's where it gets me. I understand it, but I don't always want to apply it. It means even if his claims fly in the face of political correctness, and when all the fans are turning away from him and we find ourselves in this small, ostracized minority, followers know there's nowhere else to go to find life. Or if you're following, a follower is devoted to Christ no matter what. No matter what. You hear it in Peter's words? Followers are those who have tasted the bread of life. And they know the satisfaction it brings. They've tried all the breads of this world and it's left them lacking. Like Peter in Christ, they found the words of eternal life and they know and believe he is the Holy One of God. He is like no one who ever lived. Will following him be easy? It won't be. But it'll be worth it followers is what Jesus is really after. Isn't that why we're declaring war on shallow Christianity as a church? I was ready to end it right there. We got two responses, but there's actually three responses, and this last one kind of scares me. The more I looked at it, number three is fake. Fake. Did you see it in Judas? One of the twelve He's been with him his whole ministry. I mean, Judas put his life on the line at times. He said and did all the right things. He appears genuine. And yet, deep down, he never really trusted the Lord. If you're on your notes there, a fake is someone who appears genuine, but never fully trusts. He fooled everyone. Maybe even himself, to be honest. Now listen, I'm not saying that every pretend believer is a Judas. Most of them, in fact, are well-meaning churchgoers who behave a lot like their Christian peers, but they're motivated by something other than a deep level of trust. They might be motivated by status of coming to church, of approval of their family and friends, of making business contacts, who knows. But they think at the end of their life, if they just do enough good to outweigh all the bad that they did, that they're going to stand before God and he's going to say, come on in. But instead, we're told these sobering words. Jesus will look at them and say, I never knew you. And that's what this is all about. I am the bread of life. You must receive me. (coughs) Receive me into your life. There's no in between. So as you define your relationship with Christ this morning, I'll ask you, where do you stand? Are you a fan? You like what Jesus has to offer, but the other breads of this world, man, they're pretty enticing. I'm not sure I can go all in with this. If that's where you find yourself, uh, let me just encourage you, there's a great book by Kyle Eidelman called Not A Fan. If you'd like to dig deeper into that, I couldn't recommend that more highly. Or are you a fake? Only you and the Lord know that one, right? You can say and do all the right things. All of us could believe, but you know deep down in your heart, you've never really trusted him. He's not the most important thing in your life. Or are you a follower? Have you found true life and satisfaction in the bread that has come down from heaven and you're ready to go the distance? If you're falling on your notes, the question Jesus asks all of us to consider in this encounter this morning is, am I a fan, fake, or follower in my relationship with Christ? Now here's the good news. Wherever you stand, the invitation remains the same today as it did for the crowd on that day. You remember his words? He said, I am the bread of life. If anyone eats of this bread... They will live forever. You know what my favorite word in that is? Anyone. Anyone. This is an all-inclusive thing, right? No matter where your relationship has been with Christ in the past, you can be a follower today. It means anyone who has ever laid at bed at night knowing there's a hole in my life and these breads of the world are not satisfying it, you can come to him and find satisfaction anyone means anyone anyone means everyone anyone means me anyone means you and he invites you he invites you to follow him today let's pray lord what an incredibly powerful passage you've given us this morning and i know all of us would love to say Ah. I constantly taste and know that the bread of life is the thing that satisfies me, but there's no doubt we all struggle with the other breads of this world. We want the water bottle instead of the pump sometimes. But Lord, you're interested in commitment, not fans. You're looking for followers, not fakes. So we just lay our heart to bear to you this morning. Examine us during this time of communion. As we take the body, as we reflect on the blood that was poured out, let us be honest about where we stand with you. Let's define the relationship and use this time to do that very thing.